This is Smarter Care Connections, a podcast produced by the Virginia Center for Health Innovation. Smarter Care Connections features conversations with faculty from the Smarter Care Virginia Low Value Healthcare Reduction Initiative, as well as other thought leaders and partners of the center. These conversations are intended to be informative, but easily digestible by healthcare professionals and policymakers interested in improving healthcare value. Thanks for listening. In this episode of Smarter Care Connections, our Smarter Care Virginia lead evaluator, Dr. John Moffey, chats with fellow low-value care crusader, Dr. Ashani Ganguly, on her research around cascades and reducing low-value care at the local health system level. Dr. Moffey is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of General Internal Medicine and Health Services Research at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, where he also practices and teaches primary care and inpatient geriatrics. Dr. Mafi is currently leading several national studies on medical overuse among older Americans, as well as initiatives using electronic health records to measure and improve the value of healthcare. Now let's meet Dr. Ganguly. Ishani Ganguly is Assistant Professor of Medicine and a primary care physician at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital Division of General Internal Medicine and Primary Care. Her research focuses on the value of ambulatory care, the use and consequences of low-value care, and how healthcare policies and primary care payment and delivery models shape patient and clinician behavior, health outcomes, and spending. Dr. Ganguly serves as associate editor as ja- of JAMA. Dr. Ganguly serves as an associate editor at JAMA Network Open. She is also a journalist who has written about science and healthcare for the Boston Globe, Reuters, the New York Times, and the Washington Post, among other publications. She received her AB, MD, and MPH from Harvard University and completed internal medicine, primary care residency and a health policy management fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital. We're thrilled to have her with us today. John? Thank you, Ashley, for that that wonderful introduction. Um, I'm really excited to to be here today with uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Shani Ganguly, and I am uh, very excited to talk about her groundbreaking research in two areas, pushing the field forward, in, in the overuse uh, of medical uh, services. And, uh, you know, the first uh, area that I want to, to pick her brain is her pioneering work on cascades. Uh, that is, uh, you know, a low value service or, a, or you know, a, a service that has no net patient benefit in specific clinical scenarios and perhaps some harm. And that harm is, uh, is uh, quantified in the downstream uh, cascades that happen. You do a chest x-ray for a pre-op, shows a nodule, and then that nodule leads to a CT. That CT shows an adrenal nodule, then you get an adrenal nodule CT, and then it goes on and on and on, and surgery is delayed, and, and the patient's anxious. So we see this all the time. I'm a primary care doc. We see this, in, you know, and Ashani has quantified this on the population level in really creative ways. And then the second area I want to talk to her about is her brand new hot off the press paper, on health system overuse at the health system level, which is rel- very relevant to our work here in Virginia. So Ashani, um, please tell us about uh, your work on cascades and you know, how, how you were able to achieve uh, you know, uh, this, this really uh, brilliant work and, and how 
what's the reaction and, and, and where, what's, what's next? Thanks so much, John. It's great to be here. And um, I've learned so much from your work in this space as well. So it's a real delight to talk to you. Um, so lot to, lot to say here. I think that um, you described Cascades really nicely. It's this notion that a, a service, any service, really any medical care um, can lead to, you know, the next thing and the next, um, each one a logical progression from the one before, but often, especially when it starts with a low value service or an incidental finding can end up being sort of meaningless in the end and cause significant harm to patients and clinicians. And so a, a lot of the work that our team has been work, uh, focusing on is how to quantify those cascades how to incorporate them into conversations about low value care, because traditionally uh, the, the impact of low value care has been measured um, focusing solely on the service itself and not what might come after. Um, and then also trying to understand clinician and patient perspectives on these cascades and the harms that can follow. So I can briefly walk you through some of this work. We've um, used national Medicare claims to estimate cascades um, that have come out of, for example, pre-op EKGs for cataract surgery. Um, and in that example, you know, this is a service that is, um, you know, doing a, a pre-op EKG for cataract surgery is, is uh, well codified to be fairly useless. Um, the cataract surgery is a quick procedure. Doing that EKG beforehand really doesn't change the clinical outcomes from the surgery, yet it's commonly done. And so we estimate that there are, you know, five to 11 additional cascade events that's either lab tests or uh, treatments or procedures, et cetera, that follow in just those 90 days after the service um, compared to people who don't get them. Um, and that cost really adds up. So those EKGs themselves may cost um, $5 million across all Medicare beneficiaries who are getting the surgery, but the downstream cascades add up to about 35 million if you do the math. And so um, really, that was our first effort to try to quantify. Um, another example is looking at routine annual wellness visits. So this is a service that Medicare first introduced to the uh, ACA, Affordable Care Act. Um, it really wasn't focused on lab testing at all. It's not part of the requirements for the visit, yet these tests seem to be done uh, with some frequency. And we, we describe the cascades that follow from EKGs and urinalyses that come, after, come uh, during those visits. Um, another example is looking at cascades uh, that come out of troponin testing in the emergency department. So um, this is a test that is um, meant to uh, it rule out a heart attack in patients who come in with chest pain. And this is a diagnosis that is, you know, do not miss, yet is relatively rare. So 5% of all patients who come in with chest pain actually have a heart attack. But we do this troponin test on, on many of those patients. And um, a new higher sensitivity troponin test came out on a single day across a, a large health system. So we used that chance to see, well, did this actually increase your rates of cascades that followed? Um, and this was a difference in differences approach to try to estimate the, the effect of that one event. And we find that there is more services that follow the troponin testing after you have that more sensitive test, but less of the kinds of services that you might actually worry about, like catheterization, like um, surgery, like um, uh, hospitalization. So potentially a good news story there. So that sort of describes some of the work we've done to, to quantify cascades to count what's happening. We're, we're, there's a couple more examples that are in the works. Um, and then the other piece of work um, that we've talked a bit about is, or we could talk a bit about, is um, the national survey that we did looking at how physicians experience cascades. So this was a study that um, surveyed American College of Physician doctors, generalists across the U.S. to understand how they experienced cascades and what were, what were in those cascades and, um, 
in uh, their motivations for pursuing them. And this was really focused on incidental findings. So um, you found there was an unexpected result on a test that was not the reason you did the test, and then um, what happened after. So in that survey, we find that cascades are incredibly common. Um, basically, everybody other than two individuals out of a 300-person survey said they had experienced them. And this was often, um, and, and when people experienced them, it was quite frequently. So in the order of weekly or monthly, they had some kind of a follow-up phone call or or um, or office visit, or um, even the majority had experienced their patients going into the ED or being hospitalized for a cascade. Physicians reported um, harms to themselves from, from these uh, cascades because they often feel like you're compelled to do them, but they're not going to offer much benefit for patients. And so um, they described feelings like anxiety and um, you know additional burden from doing them. They also noted a lot of patient harms, um, both financial and psychological, from, from doing these cascades. And um, another key finding was the, sort of the reasons that doctors felt like they had to pursue cascades that were separate from clinical reasons. So sometimes, of course, you do want to follow up. There's something, you know, you did happen to find that cancer that, um, you know, that is treatable at this stage, but wouldn't have been later. And that's, that is obviously a, a very good clinical finding. Um, but in the cases where that it, there was not a good clinical reason to, to pursue that incidental finding, they see that um, they they note that the common reasons were because other people in my clinic or um, my peers would have done the same um, fears of malpractice and trying to avoid that, and then also their patients asking for it. So let me pause there. I know I said a lot, but maybe we can dig deeper into some of these or talk about other angles. Yeah, that was a wonderful overview, and uh, re it reminded me of just how productive you've been in, in this field, in really just pushing this field forward and quantifying, uh, you know, the second and third and fourth order effects of some of the medical decisions we make that, you know, we're sometimes, uh, we, don't, we don't even think about because it's so ubiquitous. It's everywhere, and it's, it's in day-to-day -day practice, and uh, I think it's wonderful that you're that you're quantifying it in this way, and I think you really touched on a really important point. Um, you know, going back to your first example of cataract surgery, you know, there has been large randomized trials, as you alluded to, of you know, 18, 19,000 individuals randomized to receiving an EKG, uh, routine X-ray, and labs prior to cataract surgery, and there was no measurable improvement on health outcomes uh, or on perioperative events, adverse events, uh, medical complications, nothing. And it was a very well-powered trial. And But you, you brought up a really important point that you hear these uh, pushback from clinicians um, where they have these um, anecdotal experiences of, well, I caught this lung cancer, and so I'm going to be getting this chest x-ray um, and, 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 and when you look at like a trial like that, you know, probably what my interpretation is the vast majority of these tests did nothing, a small amount did harm and a small amount did benefit. And the average effect was nothing. And, right. uh, no, no, you know, uh, and, and, and so, you know, while yes, you may have that experience on an, on an individual narrative. Uh, it probably gets canceled out by all of the other harms that are being caused by reflexively doing this. And it's really hard to sort of get uh, 
to 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 try to marry the individual experience with the population. I mean, it's the paradox of our of our field. But right. I wonder if you've experienced that as well. Yeah, very well said. I'm thinking about average versus local treatment effects, right? And we we're really uncomfortable talking about and you know with a patient sort of saying, well, on average, this is not going to help you. But what if you're that person? It's going to help. It's just it's it. There's this sort of disconnect as you as you point out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that that so I think that's why it's so critical to do some of the work that, including work you've led, John, um, to to stop cascades before you even see them, right? So when I think about you know what can we do to to reduce this problem, that you can imagine the first uh, approach is to prevent that incidental finding from being found in the first place. And that means avoiding low value services um, and avoiding, and there are also some approaches that you know radiologists can take, for example, to focus their read on the part of the body that was intended and not look elsewhere. Like there's, there's some sort of policy uh, um, solutions there. Um, and the reason is that once you do find that incidental finding, it is so difficult to, to uh, take it to the, uh, to not, mm-hmm. Go mm-hmm. further because at that point it's it's a real tangible finding and mm-hmm. um, God forbid we we miss something and I I think that you know a lot of the discourse about low value care has really focused on fee for service and you know doctors financial incentives um, and I think as fellow PCPs we that's that's not really not what I'm thinking about I mean so I'm not paid in that way because my I think you're probably similar where I'm not getting a you know a cut of every service that my patients get. Mm-hmm. Um, if I am pursuing something, it's because I genuinely want to make sure that I'm not missing something important. Um, or, you know, in other cases, if there is, um, let's say an incidental finding, then I'm calling that radiologist and really trying to understand like, what is the actual risk of this? And would it be okay to do watchful waiting instead or something that may be a blow, um, be less, um, burdensome for patients. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, I think that that part gets lost sometimes in the low value care discourse. Very well said. Uh, my sense is I, I most physicians are trying to do the right thing and are not sort of having these nefarious financial uh, incentives. And, and the financial incentives are, I, th- I think of them more on the organizational or, you know, structural mm-hmm. level, pushing things from, from that uh, level, whereas the individual providers, they're just trying to do right by their patients within this structure. And what I try to teach uh, our residents is that, you know, when you order these unnecessary tests, it creates so much more work for everybody. And, and that also can contribute to burnout. You know, my inbox will fill up if I'm doing all these pre-ops and, uh, and, and, you know, be curious to know how much people's inboxes are uh, filled with incidental findings and Mm -hmm. how much is that contributing to all of the the study after study showing that docs are up at 10, 11 PM at night, you know, finishing their charting and they're clearing their inboxes on, on their, you know, electronic health record. And um, I mean, so much of that can be simplified by just avoiding, uh, you know, the, uh, the unnecessary test in the first place, like the annual, you know, CPC or whatever it is. Um, So it's wonderful. uh, Yeah. And there was an intern that I uh, was reviewing his note recently and um, I noticed those tests and had, it was a really good teaching moment to be able to say, so tell me more about your thinking there he had just seen other doctors do it. So he's like, well, this is what you do. Um, but we had a chance to think about why why might you need that or, or not need that? And then what are the actual benefits to you individually in addition to all the other benefits of, of avoiding that test? Absolutely. I just had a patient uh, yesterday 
who is saying, I, I need a, a screening CRP and ESR. These are inflammatory blood markers to make sure I don't have inflammation and arthritis. And, uh, you know, it led to, and, and I need vitamin D testing. Uh, and it led to a very long conversation to, yeah. you know, this, this may lead to more harm than good. Uh, and, uh, you know, we eventually compromised to getting a CBC and chem seven. I was like, well, these, they're not absolutely needed, but yeah. You know, we'll do, you know, she was really pushing and, and part of it was, she said, it's my annual physical, my insurance company will pay for any, most any yeah. labs. So that, right. that was part of it. It was driving some of the uh, low value care as well. Yeah. So that's, that's amazing. So what's next for you then on, on yeah. this front? Um, yeah, good question. So um, I mentioned we're, we're thinking about different ways to quantify these services. We have a couple other um, sort of examples cooking and their downstream consequences. The other big piece of work, and um, this is really in, I guess, I guess active enrollment phase is an um, RCT mm. of an intervention that we've designed to try to reduce cascades. Um, wow. The, I say that, and I also want to qualify it because I think, you know, when we started this work a year ago, our big goal was cutting down on cascades, right? Um, that's obviously a very general and large undertaking. And as we did the first phase of the work, which was to interview doctors and patients, it became clear pretty quickly that this the conceptualization of cascades. While we we sort of know it intuitively as we talk, John, like it's it's hard to make it make sense to patients because it is in some sense just medical care. Um, at, mm -hmm. And at the end of that cascade, there's a sense of relief that oh, I don't actually have that cancer. And so mm -hmm. you know, talking about that in an explicit way upfront is um, you know going a little bit too fast, too far. Um, and really what we learned is that there's a lot more basic medical test literacy that we need to um, help our patients achieve before getting there. Yeah. And so, um, you know, concepts like, you know, a medical test can, or a result can be a false positive or a false negative, the idea that they are not entirely just true all the time. Um, and this idea that tests can cascade and lead to more testing that may not be beneficial. All of this is mm. we learned from these interviews is, is um, sort of um, important to to convey. And so, um, mm. and when we talk to doctors, we realize you know we all are again well intentioned, but uh, we think we're doing this you know having these conversations more than we actually are, um, and we think that we're getting to explaining mm. to patients better than we actually are. Um, and you know, building on prior literature showing that peer comparison or nudges can be very effective. Um, also used that in our design intervention design to actually show doctors how much they're ordering um, routine low-value lab tests compared to their peers as a way wow. of, kind of helping them focus on this issue. And so the 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 uh, it's sort of a multimodal intervention where um, we created a website and video and quiz and um, and it's delivered through a smartphone or email for patients as well as some handouts that are embedded into our EHR that are part of our larger primary care resource um, that patients get other handouts from, um, teaching about medical tests. And then on the physician side, we have resources on medical test interpretation, incidental findings, so language you can use, um, how, to, how to manage sort of common incidental findings. Um, those you know, lines on the CBC or complete blood count that um, are inevitably slightly abnormal, but don't really know what to do with them, things like that. Um, paired with this peer comparison that I mentioned. And so we're, we're in the process of testing out this intervention right now. So, wow, that's amazing. Um, we'll see how it goes. It's really I think, exciting. 
um, the, you know, the, the main outcome that we're really focusing on is just having those conversations, um, you know, creating a lower bar to, to talk to, in essence, shared decision-making about these even everyday common lab tests um, mm. with the idea that that may then maybe prevent doing those tests that are on the margin, but then if the tests are done, then sort of having a better conversation and less anxiety that follows. Wow, that's so exciting. I can't wait to see the results of that trial. That sounds amazing. And uh, it sounds like that's uh, something uh, that we can learn from here in Virginia um, as we're trying to uh, approach, you know, these the health systems here. And uh, speaking of health systems, I, I think that's also a good segue into another whole area of work that you've been pioneering which is quantifying uh, low value care from the health system uh, level. And, uh, and, and, you know, the reasoning is that, you know, there's been a lot of population level studies across all Medicare beneficiaries and all commercial, uh, you know, uh, commercial insurance members quantifying low value care and its costs at these, at these levels, but they're hard to sort of do anything about because you, you don't know, you don't know where to start. And, so you have done this uh, study in JAMA Internal Medicine that really looks at hundreds of health systems across the United States and compares uh, medical overuse uh, delivery rates across these different health systems, and you find different interesting correlates, uh, you know, across that that are associated with being more likely to to deliver low value care. Such as the most intriguing to me was a lack of primary care doctors. Uh, which, you know, it has been found in other studies, but, but really nicely you showed how if, you, if you're, you know, dominated, you know, in a health system with lots of specialists, you're, you're going to be more likely to order these low-value tests rather than if it's, there's a strong primary care presence. I thought that was fascinating. And I'm, uh, it, that paper just came out. It's hot off the press, getting a lot of uh, well-deserved attention. I'd love to hear more thoughts on, on you know, what what you were found and and what you what, what were you surprised by and and what the feedback has been? Yeah, thanks, John. And I want to first acknowledge that this was a huge team effort, uh, including Carrie Cola, Nancy Morden at, at Dartmouth, and our team, um, Wendy Yang, uh, uh, Maya Crawford uh, as well. But yeah, so this this work um, came out of uh, a couple of questions. So we were really interested in health systems in. As you said, that there hadn't there hadn't been much work looking um, specifically at individual health systems to try to understand their their contribution to low value care. We've, we've generally been looking um, at larger swaths of geography, including hospital referral regions. Um, and there was some evidence. Aaron Schwartz and others have shown that you know provider groups. You know when you think about um, anywhere from a hospital to a health system to to a small practice. Um, does seem to have sort of distinct pattern of, of low value care use that, that is consistent over time. And so there was some signal there. And we wanted to look at health systems in particular because they are a growing share or um, source of healthcare for Americans. So more and more practices and doctors are um, being employed by health systems and these and Americans are seeing more likely to have um, a health system as their primary uh, source of care. Uh, and then secondly, we thought that systems were important because they were an important lo locus of control or loci of control for low value care use. And that's for a couple of reasons, because um, health systems have a lot of influence through their policies, the technologies that they use, their referral networks, 
their clinical workflows? For example, do they have a pre-op clinic? I know you know a lot about that topic, John. Um, their uh, culture, as well as how they compensate their doctors. And you know, with the proper information, they may also be able to use those same uh, levers to uh, to uh, improve on that those uh, low value care use. So there's a couple of reasons why we thought this was an interesting area. Mm-hmm. Um, and we use Milliman data um, or Milliman measures along with some self-created measures and um, a, a health systems from the ARC compendium. So we looked at 556 health systems across the U.S. and we measure low value care use across 41 measures. And then for um, a composite measure, we focus on the 28 most common of those measures. So we find a couple of things. An average of 0% to 28% of beneficiaries or patients received each of those 41 services. Um, So there's quite a bit of range. And the ones that were most commonly used and had the most sort of variation by system were lab tests and drugs. We find that um, they're of the of the common ones, the most common was pre-op lab testing before low-risk procedures. So again, uh, John, your work on reducing uh, pre-op lab testing is uh, incredibly important. Uh, there is the um, prostate cancer screening in men over 70 and antipsychotic medication use in patients with dementia. So those were the really um, most common we saw in the order of more than a quarter of eligible patients actually got it. We then had the opportunity to map out these health systems based on their headquarters to see where this was happening. And this is something that we are, um, that is available and you can search it yourself if you go on to the, the, the um, paper. So you can see that there's certain areas. So for example, the South uh, tends to have more low value care user health systems there. And then um, large cities like New York and LA seem to have more health systems that have uh, more low value care use. Um, and then the other key point is, is uh, what you were alluding to, what are predictors at a health system level of using more low-value care? And one of them, as you said, was having a, a lower share of primary care doctors. A couple of reasons for that. I think one key one is that a lot of these services are not actually done by primary care doctors. Um, and <laughs> if, if the care, if a, you know, a given symptom is, is evaluated by the PCP, they may actually preclude going to that specialist and doing that care. Some of it is the classic supplies-induced uh, demand, the idea that if there are mm-hmm. more specialists in an area and you, um, on the margin, may or may not need a referral for something, you're more likely to do it because that specialist is you know, just one click away. Um, and so systems that have fewer specialists, that there's more of a, an activation energy, if you will, to, to doing that referral and leading to that additional testing. Um, we also find that systems that do not have a major teaching hospital um, use more low-value care, so potentially... Um, academic centers may be um, more aware of evidence or literature, for example, on um, services to avoid. That's one one interpretation. Um, we also see these geographic patterns I, I mentioned before. And this is really consistent with prior work on low-value care that you and others have done, right? So the South and the West seem to be the places where there is more low-value care use. And in general, um, the Northeast is a little bit better. Um, we don't find any association with um, factors like ACO status or profit status, which we were, we were interested in, in looking at because, of course, ACOs are incentivized to lower costs or spending for their populations. And a for-profit hospital or health system, in theory, um, is more incentivized by, by profit margins. But um, this was a little bit surprising, but also not. And I'll, and the reason is that we know from other evidence um, that ACOs have not made too much of a dent in low-value care use. It's also the case that it's 
low value care is just such a low priority for a lot of ACOs. There's the higher spend is in other kinds of services that are distinct from these sort of choosing wisely based measures. Um, that mm-hmm. my my experience having worked in an ACO and talking to others is that they're that's just really not where they're focusing their energy. Um, so not too surprising to me that that was um, being in an ACO wasn't linked to um, using less low value care. Um, and in the profit status, you know, two reasons. One is that we had very few for profit systems in our study, so that's just uh, a numbers game. And then the second is that even non for profits, as you know, right, are um, are still incentivized to, to um, maintain their margins because they use that margin to pay for um, uh, a lot of care. And so um, the the incentives are not so distinct between for-profit and nonprofit institutions as one might think. Um, so those are a couple of the highlights, but I'm happy to talk more about very, it. Very interesting. Oh, it's very interesting. A tour de force. One, uh, you know, uh, thing that comes up in my mind is, you know, ACOs, uh, from my understanding, at least the Medicare ACOs, um, tend to be focused on part B spending, part A and B spending, and not really focused on part D spending. Um, so prescription drugs, I, from what I understand, are not really included in, in the sort of uh, accountable costs, uh, you know, formula. And a lot of the low value care measures, you know, fall under that uh, part D uh, category. So I wonder, as a next follow-up study, it'd be interesting to see if um, if if uh, if you took out the Part D and just the Part A and B, if if maybe there would be more of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I know that Aaron Schwartz uh, has done some really interesting work where he found a very, like you said, a very small effect. You know, looking before and after compared to to control groups. But I think I think your findings kind of underscore. A couple of, like you said, the the incentives aren't that strong, um, and they, um, uh, you know, the, the you know that they don't necessarily uh, always the finances don't always uh, make sense. And uh, you know, when I prescribe something, it doesn't actually even mean that UCLA is getting more money either. And 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 so the the comp the finances aren't aren't so simple, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know. Um, um, but but I think that uh, it, it also raises the question then, well, what is a financial structure that actually would uh, incentivize uh, hospitals, health systems, and physicians and clinicians to, to really get serious about reducing low-value care? And, um, you know, I'm curious what, what you think, uh, you know, looking ahead, if you, um, you know, were... Uh, Biden's next HHS health secretary, uh, which is a possibility. Uh, what what would you uh, what would you what would you um, what in regard to reducing overuse across health systems? What where would you advise um, we consider? Uh, what do you think is what do you think is our best way to spend our uh, our time and resources to to fix this problem. Yeah, it's such a good question. I think that I think fundamentally this work has to be local. Um, I think that there's a lot that national and state policymakers can do to support the local work, um, and mm-hmm. some of that is um, supporting and even requiring measurement uh, in a way that 
not that not that measurement will be perfect, but as a way of pointing to the areas of highest yield. Um, so, for example, in this in this um, health system study that we just did, you can um, you can look up your individual health system and say, okay, well, which is the measure where we're doing particularly where a lot of our patients are getting the service, or we're getting, doing a lot more of these than other uh, similar health systems, and then maybe focus on that. But I think the actual interventions really do have to be um, thoughtful about that particular workplace culture. Um, you know, think about point of care solutions that are, for example, clinical decision support that's reminding you um, in that electronic health record, oh, wait, you should be ordering this test instead of that. Um, you know, behavioral uh, designs that um, take into account just um, the, what we understand in behavioral economics to, um, to nudge you to do one thing over another, right? So putting the generic medication above the, uh, the name brand is a classic example. Um, so I think that ultimately it does have to be at that local level to be effective because these decisions are made at such a micro level. Um, but then mm -hmm. at you know the at the health system and and um, uh, state and um, and national level, you want to be able to support the um, the num the data needed to make those local decisions, um, and then also to um, have some accountability around them too. And I think the accountability can't be so granular as to be burdensome or or too burdensome, but it has to have some um, sort of teeth to them as well. Um, so, you know, one example could be for ACOs incorporating low-value care use as an element of quality, uh, as, a, as in addition to all the other quality measures that exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I uh, completely agree um, because uh, that's exactly what we're trying to do in Virginia. Uh, you know, we we have uh, these measures. They're not, as you say, they're not perfect, and so we. Are approaching these health systems with hopefully, uh, I like to think, humility and saying, you know, here, you know, help us make sense of this variation of low value care across these different six health systems. But ultimately, it's up to you. Uh, you know, how locally, you understand the local culture, uh, culture eats strategy for lunch. So we can't, we can't, you know, in Richmond, you know, uh, think, you know, here's what, what needs to happen. We need to really rely on that local. In, you know, institutional uh, and cultural knowledge that that is really make or break for this. Um, the challenge is, like you said, um, designing a central top-down structure that is uh, that provides the financial underpinnings, the financial incentives to incentivize uh, the the physicians and hospitals to really pay attention, which is not there yet. Um, but also design something that allows for uh, autonomy and freedom at the local level, um, but is not, you know, um, you know, but is also not, you know, uh, completely uh, without any kind of teeth. So it's really hard to find that balance. I don't think, I don't think we figured that out yet. I think that's sort of the next uh, uh, on the horizon, but I, I completely agree with your, with your assessment. Um, I'm curious, what would you say, you know, I, when I present this work, particularly to clinicians, um, you know, I, I do get very, uh, you know, appropriately so pushback on, um, you know, I get some, some physicians who are very sympathetic. Oh, yeah, I see this all the time. You know, um, this is, uh, you know, I, 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 I see the incidental omas all the time. It's so painful. But then I, as, as we were talking before the recording, there are some physicians, clinicians say, you know, I, I found this case uh, of, of cancer uh, from this low value x-ray or whatnot. Uh, what do you say to some of the, the skeptical physicians on, on all this, 
uh, you know, all these data uh, that they, they, just, they just don't believe it. And, and in their in their practice, they don't see this. I mean, there were two there were two physicians who said they don't see incidental illness, uh, you know, in your survey, for instance. But what what, what do you think? Uh, what's your sort of uh, response? Yeah, it's it's hard. I think there's so many natural human reasons why you might say something like it's not at all surprising that that um, doctors are human. We all uh, sort of carry with us the availability bias and other um, reasons why a previous mm-hmm. experience um, shapes our future decision making. There was a really nice study that just came out. Um, it, did you see this in Science um, by Manas yeah. saying looking at yeah, beautiful quantifying um, rates of C-section. Um, it, um, linking that to a doctor having had a, a good or bad outcome before that uh, that decision, and so it's you know, it's human nature, and I think you know building structures to try to um, to circumvent the human human nature is important, and not resting on on physicians to to always uh, find that right thing to do. Um, I think you know in, in talking to doctors, I think maybe one one way of um, sort of shifting the narrative from, well, there was that one time that I caught something is to think about all the times where doing more actually led to harm as well. Um, and so mm-hmm. when you start to have that conversation about, oh, oh, I remember that time where, you know, we did that urinalysis and then there was a little bit of blood and it led to that. And then there, you know, the patient's getting a nephrectomy at the end of this and it turns out to be a benign cyst, right? Um, those stories and really highlighting them can be really powerful um, mm-hmm. and sort of and then also giving, I think, language. I think there's some doctors where they're like, well, I don't know, the patient wanted it. And um, I I also have to, now my my patient ratings are online, which is um, another human, you know, um, it is it is just human nature to, to care about that and not want to get a, um, a negative rating from a, a patient. So providing language, like literal words to say that can, um, can offer that reassurance to patients or to explain um, why certain tests might not be needed. Um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, tools to talk to patients better as well. So, um, you know, one, one insight, I remember one of our uh, interviewees shared was that whenever they're faced with a patient who's like, I really want, who says they really want a certain test, digging deeper to understand what is their motivation for asking for it. And really going back to, like, we want to solve for that motivation. So it's sort of doing a root cause analysis, right? So you're asking for a complete blood work panel really what you're saying is I want to feel healthy. I want to make sure that there's nothing wrong with me. Um, but what are the ways you can do that that are not going to uh, induce more harm or into, to induce harm, right? So if, if they're saying that I'm worried about my risk factors, let's talk about those risk factors. Let's think about exercise. Let's think about you know um, what are aspects of your diet that we can change. Um, so really uh, taking that time. Um, as I say that, I also recognize how little time we have, especially in primary care and how many community demands. So all of this has to come with um, changes that allow more time between patients and clinicians and um, space to have these conversations and uh, as well as the tools to, to be able to have them well. Yeah. I mean, the time one is a tough one because the, the, you know, when I talk to the residents about um, unnecessary care, like we don't have time to go through why this MRI is not needed. And I tell them, um, well, think about it though. If you order the MRI, you're going to have to chase it down. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to call the patient. You're going to have to consider a referral uh, that may or may not help the patient. And you're going to have to spend all this extra time, you know, managing and coordinating care. Yeah. So um, if this isn't needed, 
uh, yeah, it's going to take more time up front, but right. it may actually save you time overall. Um, yeah. But it's hard to sort of do that again when things are so rushed. But I try right. to make that case to our residents. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and, and I think that one of the things that I heard somebody recently talk about is that it's not about less care. It's about the right care. Yep. You know, and, and if you can sort of get that up front, um, you, you tend to be more likely to get uh, patients and, and clinicians on board with you, um, right. you know, um, but it's, it's, it's really tough. Yeah. Um, There's a related so issue as well that I know that you've articulated of, of the low value care crowding out high value care. We also um, often have uh, commit the sin of omission of missing services that patients actually need. Um, and so if we could spend less of that energy on chasing down the services that are unnecessary, we could, we could do the right things. That's so true. That's so true. Um, you know, we only have so much bandwidth, mental bandwidth. So if uh, I, I've, I've done this myself, you know, I've focused on these things that don't really matter. And, it, and, it, and sometimes you kind of can miss the ball on the thing that really matters um, with regard to the patient. Um, so I think that's really important. And, you know, with regard to access, you know, we have long waits nationwide for getting colonoscopies done. And part of that is that, you know, 10 to 20% of these colonoscopies are unnecessary. They're too early, uh, too young and too old. And so they're getting in the way of high value, you know, really necessary screening colonoscopies and we're missing more cancers because of it. So, um, so, so I think that um, making that link to quality of care and access to care, I think really matters. And I think making the link to health equity, you know, because we, we, don't, we don't have unlimited resources to spend. Uh, we want to spend more money on reducing disparities and hypertension and diabetes and, and heart disease um, and, and reducing inequities. And we want to expand access to high value treatments for them. So how are we going to pay for it? And I think one way is to, is to reduce low value care. Um, aside from that, you know, the other way is to lower prices, but, you know, good luck getting that passed with all the, all the, all the special interest groups. But, um, you know, I'm curious if, if you thought about that link, you know, the linking this problem to sort of our broader health system, you know, health yeah. problems more broadly in our health system. I mean, you, you said it well. I think that um, the equity lens is a really interesting one because the, that the evidence is more mixed on um, on what sorts of services. That there's some low value services that are more often done in um, you know in white populations, other in minoritized, and um, there is harms. There's, there's it's complicated there. I think that the broader takeaway that this is a this the consequences of low value care extend beyond those services themselves and just the price of those services. It's a really important one. Um, and then I'm reminded that these arguments are critically important in policy circles, but then when you go to that back to that patient clinician interaction, those carry no water, right? It's really at that point, yeah, it's yeah. About, you, um, we, we do have to focus on, well, you're the one who's going to get the diarrhea if we give you this antibiotic for like a viral conjunctivitis, right? Um, and so that sort of that interplay of, of thinking about the bigger picture, but then really, um, you know, making the case that suits the moment. And I, I hear some uh, lawn mowing in the background. I don't know if you can hear that. I'm sorry if, if that's. No, okay. no, 
good. No, but that's a really important point. So our when we talk about we we define low value care early on in this in this conversation as patient care that provides no net health benefit. Um, so care that doesn't improve the lives of patients in specific clinical scenarios and may cause harm. Mm -hmm. And in that, in those examples, it's very straightforward to say, this isn't going to help you. This may actually cause you harm, uh, to the end of, and so it's not even about society. Society is, mm -hmm. you know, secondary right. and right. primary issue is this isn't going to help you. And it may cause harm, financial harm, psychological harm, or even physical mm -hmm. medical harm. It's tougher with broader definitions of low value care, where yeah. the definitions are no longer about clinical harm versus benefit, but their cost effectiveness. So this, and that's a much, much broader envelope of low value care, which we're not really talking about as much right now. Um, but, but ultimately it, it's a much bigger part of our spending, uh, you know, than, than what we're talking about. And that one is a much harder case. And that I don't know as how, as a physician, I don't think it should be the physician's job to say that th this is not a cost-effective treatment for you. We don't have the money in our society to pay for this, even though it'll extend your life by three months. We right. just can't pay for it. We can't afford it. That shouldn't be the physician. In my opinion, that should be right. a policy maker's decision, you know, from the top, right. if, if we are to go in that direction. Yeah. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, well said. I think, you know, our, we're still at the end of the day advocates for our patients and for our patients' health. Um, and we can't, um, it's just, yeah, it's not in our, it's above our pay grade, but it's also just functionally not possible to consider all of those aspects um, in a balanced way. Um, and I think that, and, and frankly, just even access to being able to prescribe certain things should be, well, that's gets a little complicated. I won't go there, but um, like I'm thinking of like the Adrenaline example, right? Like that should not, we should not even, like our, our health system made a choice. We're not going to be prescribing that. And that's, now, if patients come to me, I'll congratulations. Well. I hope you have the same. I We're trying. Have, okay. We're trying. Yeah, so that's maybe you know one example of well, um, it, it's out of my hands as it should be. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that, that, that is you know, I think the jury's out a little bit, but that sounds like very uh, very you know strong decision. I'm I'm really glad MGH decided to to not cover or not not offer uh, at a helm. Um, because it seems like there is a greater risk of harm than, than the marginal benefit from what I can tell from the data, although yeah. there's some uncertainty, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so in those situations, yeah, you know, um, very easy to say, I don't think you should, you know, treat this, but the tougher one is going to be the drug that prolongs, you know, uh, your life, you know, and cancer and it costs this much. Yeah. And, and so, uh, because like, you know, if, if you're a physician cost effectiveness, it, 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 you could be violating your oath, your Hippocratic oath by not offering something because it's too expensive in my opinion, right. uh, right. to society because, uh, and so that's why it gets very, very tricky. Um, but yeah, so better to have these decisions made from the top down. So it'll be interesting to see what Medicare decides on on Adekanumab, on Adahelm, um, in, in terms of their coverage decision. Um, I'm going to be, we have a, we have an analysis actually under review on that. So oh, cool. stay tuned. I'd love to see that. Hopefully, yeah. Um, I'm realizing the time. Should we do our final? Yeah. Tell, tell us your parting, parting <laughs> wisdom. This was oh, fun. Oh gosh. I, 
I didn't even know what I was going to say. Um, just, just <laughs> it up. Um, yeah, this was wonderful to talk. I think this is um, such an important area that I'm, you know, I'm grateful to be, to be in the space with you, John. And I think there's um, a lot more to be done. We're really just starting this work. Um, some reason for hope, I think, you know, um, but, but still a lot of progress to be made. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, thank you so much for this conversation. I really, really enjoyed it uh, thoroughly. And I hope our listeners will as well. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Ashley, for setting this up. And thank you, uh, Ishani, for your time. That was really fun. Same here. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, John. Take care. Thank you both.